The idea of job security is outdated as a landline. If you haven't been in a search for a while, it's probable you will at some point, by choice or not. Most executives admit to staying way too long or sense what's coming and justify staying anyway. Here, there's another reason. The faulty belief that navigating to what's next will inevitably be worse and has to suck. Screw that. Lauren Greif has spent a lifetime in corporate and executive search, calling bullshit on stale career advice that most still use. This is Career Blast in a Half, the career podcast for executives ready to cut past outdated career advice to fuel your outcomes now. So let's go. I'm really beyond excited because I would never call you an underdog, but I would definitely refer to you, Stephen Gates, as the crazy one. And the reason why I say that is because you're more like the phoenix than the underdog. You have, on so many occasions, reinvented yourself. You've clearly gone through multiple, multiple evolutions. You know, you've worked at Envision, you've worked at City, you've worked at Star Wars, you worked at WW, you worked at McCann, you did all this. You've won over 150 international awards. Your app designs have been named one of the world's most 100 greatest apps. All of these things have happened. And when we last left off, you were talking about not just getting fired, but the lunacy of what it's like to be in the marketplace. Yeah. And so one of the things that I want to talk about today is what you refer to as five ways to screw up your career. (laughs) There's, yeah, I think at this point, I've definitely found more than five. I think, you know, it's been, it's been a really interesting couple months. I'll say that for sure. And and I know that, yeah, so last time we talked, that was the third time in my career I've been laid off, right? And so it's not, not a new occasion. It's never fun whenever it happens. It's always a little bit different every time. I've told people for years, right? Like either you understand sort of how brutal this industry can be, or you work long enough to find out for yourself, right? I, I've got laid off with my work running globally in an Apple commercial, right? Like nothing, nothing will keep you safe from that. But it is, this is an unprecedented moment that I've seen in my career in this industry with so much of what's going on. And it was, it was a, a hard journey for me to sort of see the forest for the trees, to be able to understand and continue to believe that the way companies hire is one of the biggest reasons why they don't get better talent. Yeah, we could talk about how screw up my career. The, the, this could go a lot of different directions here based on the last couple of months. So yeah, tell me where, where do we want to dig in? Well, I, again, at last we spoke, I think it was your wife who said, okay, Stephen, like, let's not do this again. You know, the firing or the, or the letting go or the retrenchment, right? Yeah. Well, I think it was, and it's, you know, I think you, you need sort of your own personal board of directors. You need the people who can see the forest for the trees you need. And, and I'm really lucky, right? I think my wife, I had a, a couple of really kind of key friends and advisors who are just like, look, you know, it, clearly you're not happy, right? Like whether you can admit that or not. And I think even for me, it was an interesting journey because I got fired. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to learn. I'm going to take the power back. I went out on LinkedIn. I treated it like a campaign. I think the announcement that I got laid off got like 600,000 views. The announcement that I wasn't going back in-house got like a million. So it was an interesting five-month journey of basically sort of doing a sanely public face plant around like, 
I'm not going to go back to what I thought I wanted and was open with that journey. And clearly it resonated with a lot of people, but it was, it took me two or three months and probably over a hundred interviews to realize that like going back to another broken culture with another team that doesn't necessarily get design with another one that's sort of paying a lip service, it just, it wasn't what I wanted. And it took a couple conversations, one with my wife and one with another one named Celia Baffour, who gave me one of the best quotes I've ever had. Yeah, it's just sort of it is because so I also so, like cheerleaded when I saw that quote. Yeah, so I've been lucky enough. So Sylvia Baffour is a an incredible woman. She's a, a, really an expert on emotional intelligence. She's written an amazing book on I Dare to Care, and she's sort of like my Yoda or whatever you want to call it, right? Like she just has this amazing ability to sort of listen to what you're saying and cut right to the heart of it, and I'm telling her about how hard this has been and, and how many interviews I've been and how frustrated I am and I don't know what to do. And, you know, I didn't think I'd be here in my career. And she just, again, and it's like with all great insights, right? Like it sounds so deceptively simple, but it haunts you for weeks afterwards where she just said, Stephen, like, look, I need you to remember that discomfort is, is the cost of fulfillment. And for you to get back to a place where you're going to be happy, for you to get back to a place of doing something that you're going to find the love in what you're doing again, this isn't the same old script, right? It's not doing the same old thing again. Like you really have to embrace that. Like you're going to need to do something that makes you uncomfortable. And that maybe you've gotten to a point in your career where you sort of forgotten that. Okay. Can you just do us a solid and repeat that really slowly because it haunted you and I don't want to miss the opportunity for it to haunt others. So it, it is, it's, it's discomfort is the cost of admission for fulfillment. And it, it really is that place where, and I know this, I have talked about this, I have lectured around this and taught on this, that your brain basically plays a trick on you that, you know, for you to do this thing where you're like, Hey, you know, I want to do something new. I want to be able to grow. I want to, we say all those things out loud. Sounds great. But in the moment, whenever that shows up and you need to do something new, you need to grow, you need to do whatever that is. You get that it's a mix of imposter syndrome, anxiety, insecurity, right? Like all these things, we're sort of like, well, let's maybe stick with what we know. And this, I think, boils it down to the, the best way that I know how that to continue to grow, to continue to do these things. And sometimes it's small and sometimes it's massive. That what it is you want, the, the things that you need, the, the places that you want to go are on the other side of that feeling. And it really comes down to just stepping into that, owning it, you know, again, figuring out how do you do it. I'll continue to argue like there's a difference between crazy and stupid. But to sort of lean into that feeling, and again, I think I had to remind myself of the magic that comes on the other side of going through that process. I love the way that you just set me up for that, because your winning podcast, your LinkedIn, your design company borrows against this idea that you're the crazy one. And for anybody who wants to better understand your flavor of crazy and why you are willing to attach to that? Explain it, please. Well, so I think, you know, the, the concept of the crazy one really came out of, I think that showing up as your authentic self, believing in yourself, understanding your talent is, is almost a rebellious act of will whenever you try to do something creative in a corporate environment. And, and this came out of, I spent way too long in my career showing up as who I thought people wanted me to be, as, as showing up as, 
you know, the ideal employee, the ideal boss, the ideal sort of like whatever that was. And, and oftentimes in internally really beating myself up around the standards that I held other people to, the way that I wanted to work, the way that I wanted to approach things and really feeling like that was alien or wrong or something like that. And I think it, and the reason why I started the platform, the reason why I started all the content and everything else, I, I was incredibly fortunate to have the opportunity to go work for months and months on a lot of really great projects with a lot of teams at Apple and saw that this was a company that I so idolized that I held in such high esteem. Those characteristics that I thought made me so different or were bad were the things that made me pretty insanely successful there, right? Like my work's been in 10 Apple keynotes. That doesn't happen by mistake. And there's a lot of self-reflection after that. And I think a lot of it for me was I, I hit this moment where I started to show up as my authentic self, to lead as my authentic self. And, and my career just did the hockey stick of taking off. And all of a sudden it was like, you know, some big secret. But it is. I think that, you know, for a lot of creators, especially when you get to a point in your career, believing in yourself is an act of will. And I can't tell you how many people I mentor or coach or talk to who are there like, look, I'm in my 30s, my 40s, my 50s, whatever it is. I'm not happy. I don't understand what it is. And, and they spend so much time showing up as who they thought people wanted them to be. They didn't show up as themselves. And so the crazy one is the crazy one is leaning into that. So this is a little bit of a tongue in cheek way of saying, you know what, like crazy as it may be, I am who I am. And it is. But I think it's just we operate in a world, we operate in a corporate culture where being creative and authentic does require some act of kind of rebellion or being a little bit crazy. And it and I think that's. But that's the interesting part, because when you talk to people and you ask them to think about your favorite artist, your favorite painter, your favorite musician, right? Like history doesn't remember well-behaved people, right? And the funny part is yeah, companies don't want to hire generic talent. But, but in so many cases, we feel this pressure to show up as well-behaved and, you know, appealing to everybody. And it doesn't, you, it doesn't make you happy. It doesn't make you successful. It doesn't, you know, again, produce good work. But somehow we all are under this impression that that's what we need to be. Exactly. Exactly. So I always find it so fascinating because a lot of my clients come to me and complain and say, I'm not being found. I'm not being found. And then I go and look at any of their deliverables and they're like cardboard. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, why? You can't have it both ways. You can't be part of the masses and be blanding in and then expect people to go, ooh, ah. So I love this idea of just standing out and being being a little crazy. History doesn't reward people that are just kind of, you know, the drones, right? Right. Well, so. but 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 I think it's also again, like there's a whole different version of imposter syndrome when you're the guy that's had the show on this for like six and a half years and then you show up and have that same problem. But I do. I think, you know, for a lot of people, and especially whenever you get into being laid off, trying to find a new job, that is just such a fire hose of rejection to an almost inhuman demoralizing point that I think, you know, that that just that's just rocket fuel for this whole process. Yeah, but Stephen, you did it differently than anybody else because you didn't say anything that was trying to make you look good. You didn't find some euphemism that said, well, I've been eliminated or I'm on a personal sabbatical. You went right out with it with a very bold carousel on LinkedIn and said, I've been laid off again. And yeah. That is crazy in a good way, because not only did it 
help other people who had experienced that exact same career whiplash or any of those other, you know, really, really deep feelings of inadequacy come out and in so many ways normalize it. And so, you know, you may have felt like it was a face plant. I felt like for so many, it was a facelift. So, but I think that's, and it's interesting, right? And, and I think a, a big part of what I wanted to do, right? Because I think there's sort of like understanding what you feel like you should do and then actually doing it. I've sort of been dedicated recently to destroying whatever the image people think they have of me. Because for a lot of people, it's like, oh, you're so successful. You could work. I, how many, I, if I had a dollar for every time somebody said, oh, you could work wherever you wanted, I'd retire and never have to work again. Right. The problem is none of that is true. There is this fallacy that somehow you get to a point in your career where you've made it. And I guess part of it also for me, and I know some people took that as discouraging, but like we're all subject to the same problems that anybody who tells you that they aren't is lying. Completely, completely. So I want to move over to, and you can add in more if you have more, but at least the top five or the initial five ways to screw up your career. And then I'm going to, I'm going to, share why I wanted to talk about this because we're in a climate right now where, to be honest with you, there are a lot of people that are following all of this, all of these steps and don't realize that they are about to screw it up. So this is heed the warning for both of us. So the first one that I'd love you to talk about is something that we've all, myself included, been very guilty of chasing the salary or the title. Why is that a screw-up, faceplant-like, dumbass move? I think for a couple of reasons. One is because generally, at least I've, just, I've found, titles don't necessarily mean what you think they mean. Because I think what happens is for a lot of people, you know, there's equity in it. There's sort of like, oh, if I get this title, then I will have made it. Like I, I literally was talking to somebody the other day who had two years of product experience, who was working at a very small startup, and I was like, oh, they said I could be like the chief product officer. And I was like, don't do that, right? Like, don't don't sort of chase that title because either you're going to get put into a pool you don't want. But but again, I think at the end of the day, one, titles just don't mean what you think they do. Like, I was a vice president at Starwood, but when I went to City, my art directors were vice presidents, right? So, like, that didn't carry sort of the weight that I thought that it did. But also, I, can, I don't know how many people have left for a title. They left for salary because they think that's the recognition they need. That's what. And look, on the one hand, I get it, right? Especially around salary, there's bills to pay, there's that sort of stuff. But I think the problem is the number of times that I've seen people who have chased that title, who have chased that salary, who then come back two or three years later and go, well, that was a real mistake because I got the title or I got the salary, but basically I produced no good work in the last three years. I'm not growing as a career. I'm working for a company that I hate. Right. Like they almost are sort of forced to then kind of take a step backwards to get back to a place where they can grow and move forward again. And and so again, I think it's more if you invest in the skills, if you invest in the work, if you'd like and again, I think that's always a tough thing to say, especially around your career, but like the, the money and the titles will come. Yeah. I mean, I wanna put this out there and see if you agree with it. When you're chasing salary and title, it's really for your ego. It's very empty. And I'm not saying that there's no place for ego, pride, dignity in the career, in your career, but not at the expense of other things. It, it, I think there's a balance, right? And I think just like all great things, I think there is a balance because I think on the one hand, there are moments whenever you can be undervalued, whenever you can be overlooked, whenever you should. And I think that's one of the other ones that's on this list, right? Is knowing when to quit. 
And so again, I think that, but it's how do you find the perspective? How do you understand your place in the industry? How do you like, on the one hand, don't rush it and be able to just take it because you want to take it because then it is ego driven, but also, you know, don't stay there for 10 years and, and sort of be taken for granted and doing a lot of those other things and be overlooked. And I think that's often the hard part for people to know, like how, you know, how do I know sort of where I am in that? But I think that's, it's the balance between those two. I agree. Balance is so elusive, but you got to be able to at least understand what the motivators are for why you're doing it. Next one is taking the first job. So in this scenario, I'm imagining, you know, you have, you've been on a search for a while, you're finally getting an offer and you're toying with the push-pull of, I know it's really not that role, but it's a burden hand. So why is taking the first job uh, another reason to screw up your career? I think that it really is. I, I think that a lot of it comes down to making sure that it's the right job, not a job. Because the thing that happens is whenever you take a job, right? Whenever you first get there, everything's new and it's wonderful. There's all this possibility and your perspective is thrown wide open. And the good things are really good and the bad things don't seem so bad. Well, after you've been there for a while, the bad things are sort of what you focus on because you start to take the good things for granted. Well, I think that what often happens is then whenever you get to a place of looking for a new job and, and looking for these things, right? Your perspective gets thrown open again because it's all about the possibility and you aren't building up the baggage and all the things that you've accumulated in the place where you're at right now. So I think that that's often the problem is that that first job is like oxygen to a drowning person, right? Where it's like, oh, this is, I can get rid of all the problems I have here now. I can get a little bit more salary. I can and that may be true, right? But I think more often than not, people get blinded by the possibility and don't necessarily look at the reality. And I've been guilty of this too. Right? I think whenever I go into interviews, I, I try to be very clear about what are the things that I need out of my next job, right? Like what are the two, three, four things? So that whenever I do those interviews and, and it's over and I can come back, even now, right? Like there are definitely times where I'm like, that was great. This is amazing. That'd be a fantastic opportunity. And I come back and look at that list of the four things that I want and go, but wait, this job's only going to give me one. Maybe I'm sort of getting a little logo drunk about the company that it would be. Maybe I'm over-indexing on the, the personality of the persons I'm talking to. And, you know, we had a really good connection. But again, sort of injecting that reality of stepping back and saying, okay, look. And again, I think it's just, it's the recognition that, and especially if you've been going through an extended job search. Exactly. Right? That, that <laughs> the almost endorphin hit that you get of like, oh my God, somebody wants me because the, the job search. It's just basically you going like, for the love of God, would like somebody just see that I have value and recognize it because time and time again, they don't, they don't write back. They don't recognize it. And so the first time somebody does, it's like, you know, being on the bachelor, it was just like, this is amazing. This is, I'm falling in love, even though we've only talked for two hours or something, right? Like it's just this over-indexed emotion that you just need to be able to balance. Exactly. And so like the next one is know your value. And uh, here's the question. How do you know your value when you've been pummeled and rejected and it feels like it is an eternity and you're looking at your bank account and you're watching your colleagues? Right. You know, how do you keep that in perspective? What I think first off, I constantly preach to people like, look, you need a plan A, a plan B, and plan C. Because I I one, as I see a few too many people, like it's plan A or nothing, right? Like it's I'm getting a new job or that's it. 
Well, then the problem is after it's been three months, six months, the severance has run out and that's it, then all of a sudden you're in a, a very tenable spot. So, you know, to look at, okay, there's full-time freelance consulting, there's a, a, a lot of things in there, but it's hard, right? And again, I think, you know, knowing your value is a tough one because, you know, I always recognize I'm my own biggest blind spot. That oh. many times I give myself too much credit for some things, not enough credit for other things. It's hard to figure out what the balance is. It's hard to... So one of the exercises that I, I ask people to do all the time that I think is really valuable for them is, one, to write down what do you think your value is? What do you think you're good at? What are, like, what are those sort of things? And then balance that against, go out and talk to your significant other, talk to friends, talk to coworkers, talk to whatever that is, and ask them to just describe you in three words, three individual words. It's not war and peace, not a big description, just whenever you think of what I'm good at, what are the three words that come to mind? Because I think that external perspective, and just like doing any brainstorm or anything, like when you get those back, you'll start to see them grouped together. I think in a lot of cases, either one that's going to validate the things that you're actually good at and you feel a lot more confident in saying it, or there may be things that maybe you don't give yourself enough credit for. Because I know whenever people talk, whenever I talk about what's my value or what I'm good at, some that little like imposter syndrome voice in my head is always like, you're lying. People are going to figure out that you're not telling the truth. Right. Even if I know that I've done it time and time again, that's what I always show up and can do. There's a little voice that's like, you're bullshitting everybody. And so I think, you know, that ability to be able to have it grounded in that external perspective makes you more convincing when you need to talk about yourself. Because I also know a lot of people that they understand their value, but they are either so beat up, burnt out, like, you know, they just you know, like they apologize for themselves so much or they they do those sort of things that the delivery just doesn't land and it doesn't really sell it. Okay, I'm going to put you on pause because I'm going to give you some value. Stephen, Stephen Gates right here, the three words that I would like to offer you as part of your value are resilient, humble, and hilarious. <laughs> All of which is part of a winning formula for somebody that I would want to work with. Meaning that I don't want I don't want to work with somebody who thinks that they know it all and also somebody that is going to be able to bounce back when the shit hits the fan. I mean, but these aren't the words that most people would use as part of that value formula. Right. I'm a proven leader or I'm strategic. Oh, I hate that. It's corporate buzzword bingo. And I can't tell you, like every week people send me the resume to look at or whatever it is. And I can't tell you the number of times where I write back and go like, this is a lot of words to say nothing. Right? Like it's all, it doesn't say anything about you. It doesn't say why you're different. It doesn't, you know, say why, why should I, you know, pay attention to what this is. It's just like, it's a bunch of like, I feel like I need to have these sort of keywords or something. I call them powerless words. Yeah. Um, and and I get it, right? And the problem is that some companies, they work. I would just question if those are companies you want to work for. But it is. And I think like it's for me, it's been a really fascinating journey over the last couple of months because I think like even as I started my own studio, who I work with matters probably more than even the work we do. And it's, it's amazing how many of my clients will comment on, you know, the copywriter that I work with or things like that. They're like, it's just like the people you work with are so fun and they bring such good energy and like they show up and they're just good people. And like, you know, they really bring a different perspective and like, that's so great. Right. But it's, it, it is a point where I, and I think for me, it's, it's always something that I found frustrating, a little bit sad. Like even whenever I do my talks and stuff like that, people are like, oh my God, it's so refreshing. You're so honest. And it's like, who are you hanging out with 
that like having somebody tell you the truth is different, right? Like that's just, it's such a comment on the state of the industry, but it is, but just bringing in people who are just themselves and know their value and things like that is actually a competitive differentiator whenever I'm going out and working with clients. Like it's crazy that it's gotten to that point to me. I, yes. And I was over, I was interrupting you and I was over talking. I was about to call you out on the fact that it is not just your industry or our industry. It is pervasive. It is like like spreading like wildfire. All this, all this kind of protection around the buzzwords or the dumbing down of needing to look good in order to think that you're going to make a better hire or whatever. So let's let's just move on because I'm clearly about to jump <laughs> in my soapbox and offer you a diatribe. Thinking apps are a career path. What do you mean by that? I think that it's thinking that apps or technology or I think that a lot of people, especially get into the digital space, right? Like a lot of people get very, very invested. If you just look at the number of resumes for people who will list, you know, Figma, Sketch, like whatever the platforms are, I I'd sort of had to do a double take. Somebody sent me a resume the other day that one of their skills was pen and paper. And it's like, okay, I think we've gone too far. Are shocking. No, I've had, I mean, look, I've seen Microsoft Word. I'm like, just, again, it's like you're trying to, like, if you're listening to Microsoft Word as a skill, you you just, we, we need to have a conversation around, like, your self-confidence and your skills. But I look, I think a lot of it for me is that, you know, over the course of my career, I've worked in tons of different mediums. I've seen technologies change. I think you you have to build your career and work in a way of understanding that change is the constant, right? And so, like, it's interesting that you always say, like, you know, reinvention is, is one of the words you'd associate. But- I think that it's understanding like, you know, look, I, I, for a time, there was a lot of people I knew who invested all of their career and all their effort in being really good at a Macromedia Flash and then Adobe Flash and then a dead end career, right? Because in one keynote, Steve Jobs killed that entire platform by very deliberately putting up a screenshot that had a little blue puzzle piece with a question mark on it. And everybody knew that Flash was and it was dead. And again, and I think that's what I said, like it's been people designed in Photoshop, then Sketch, then Figma, and then there's going to be something else and something else after that. And it really is, look, I, I think it's more how do you invest in skills that are more timeless, that are not based in in your value being executional on a one particular tool. Right. And what I want to also share with you is that you're, and this is probably not going to be a very popular thing, which is exactly why I'm going to say it. And that goes for your degree too. Oh, yeah. Your degree is not your career path. If I... I mean, the people with, you know, whatever, the, the long veil that trails behind them of all those initials, that doesn't make you smarter. It doesn't make you a better leader. And so I am never down on education, but I don't ever believe that going back to school to get your MBA, yes, it may be cost of entry, but if you can't tell your story and know your value proposition, no MBA is going to be able to compensate for that. Oh, no, I'm, again, this is this is an unpopular thing, but like some of the worst bosses I've ever had and some of the worst people I've ever worked with, like went to Harvard and Yale and like, and they just, they're insufferable, usually because they'll tell you within the first two sentences that they went to one of those places. But <laughs> but I, I do think though it is, and look, and again, I'll share that secret, right? Like I can tell you all the time when I see somebody's resume and your education is the first thing you list, I know before we've ever talked, before we've ever met, that means you haven't done anything in your career that you are as proud of as where you went to school. Exactly. And that's a problem, 
right? Yeah. Like, it's, but that's the yeah. thing. Like, you're you're not where you went to school. You're not where you worked. You're not. Again, they're like, I look at portfolios and resumes and all this stuff. They completely leave themselves out of it. Uh -huh. That's the thing. Like, I don't I don't want to hire where you worked before. I don't want to hire where you went to school. I want to hire you. I, what what are you bringing to the table? What are you doing differently? What is the value you're going to bring? How are you going to make us better? Thank you. Your last, your last job is maybe giving you some of those skills, but that's not I what's going to do this. Now, you just totally said everything that I ever wanted to hear. <laughs> and the last one, number five, uh -huh. this one pains me, being generic, right? And yeah. so, like, what do you say to people who are, they don't want to be generic, but they really don't want to call attention to themselves or stand out? That's, to me, the hardest one. Well, and again, I think sometimes this one gets a little bit confused because being generic does not mean being loud. It does not being like an alpha personality. It does not, it doesn't mean sort of, you know, standing on the table or acting like people you've seen in movies or stuff like that, right? It's just, it often is that people do feel that pressure of, I have to appeal to everyone. I have to, you know, put myself out there and I approach building brands, building strategies the same way I, I built. I've approached building my career, which is like, and I just, I was doing some brand strategy work this morning. And my philosophy always is like, I want to build a brand that somebody hates, which is a little clickbaity, but like, but the reason why is because I'm building something that is strong enough, clear enough that if you love it, you really love it. And if you don't, you don't. And we understand that, right? Like I worked on W hotels. Some people, W was like the coolest thing ever for other people of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's exactly what we wanted. But I think that a lot of cases for me, if I'm putting out there what I am, if I'm putting out there and being authentic around what that is, some people are going to go, not for me. Yes. That's what I want, right? Like, let, let's skip that interview. Let's skip this whole thing. Skip this dance, right? Of like something that we're just, we're not going to click on anyway. And so I think like if you show up and you hire me or you do that sort of stuff, you know what you're getting, right? Like I am insanely public with those views. But that's what I mean. I, but I think generic is trying to appeal to everybody to you do that corporate buzzword bingo bullshit, right? Of just like using a lot of words and not saying anything. And and I think a lot of people will say, well, I'm too young in my career. I don't know what it is. I don't. If you're awake, you stand for something, right? You have some set of values you have. So like, don't give me this line about you don't know. Yeah, you know, I don't know what that is because you do. It's just, are you comfortable enough because this is why, you know, the, the, the unwritten secret of corporate culture is the reason why so many people are generic or go with the status quo is because it's easier, right? right? If I just float around and sort of say what everybody else says and does what everybody else does, and you see a ton of leadership takes this stance, it's easy because then, like, if I say, this is who I am, this is what I believe, take a stand, be able to say, this is my values and what I believe, I've taken a position. Well, then I'm not floating with the culture, right? Like, I've taken a position. People can shoot at it. They can support it. They can do whatever that is. but. That means I might be judged a little bit. Yeah. And that's a risk because it's a risk either way because you could get picked off for being generic and you could easily get picked off for standing out. So well, both, that's both right. Come with, both come with some level of you know clarity in terms of what you're willing to do. Well, so, and I think just even, even if somebody has been laid off three times, I would so much rather get laid off. And I have been, right? Like when I got laid off for starting things like that, it was because of the company culture shifted and they said, we don't want what you got. Mm -hmm. cool right like i'm like let's just skip that and let's move on to the next chapter right because then at least we know what that is but i think that's the problem is like generic people tend to get laid off because whenever like the bosses are sitting around if they don't know your name if they don't know your value if they don't know what it is that's an easy person to get put onto a line item to get let go 
And that's why I said, that's why I ask people all the time, like, tell me who's your favorite artist, your favorite musician, your favorite whatever. They didn't get to where they were by acting like everybody else, right? Like this is again, one of my other favorite lines is like a cover band never changed the world. All right, wait, 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 wait. This is again, like you are just like doing the dance with me and you don't even know the steps. I love it. So here we go. My three signature questions. You're offering up a blast because this is career blast and a half. What's the post-it that you want people to write out coming out of this episode? The best advice that I always go back to, and I think the post-it that I wish more people had, it just simply says success is a choice. Mm. That I think, you know, it, it the decisions you make every day, the way you decide to show up, the work you decide to put in, like, you know, I can't, it's like all the people are like, you're so lucky, bullshit, right? Like luck is the residue of skill. And, and I think that, you know, for a lot of people, the, the questions people ask you can be very telling. And I get a lot of people who always ask me, they're like, well, what's the secret, right? Like how do I, what's the secret to get a career like yours? And then I told them the same point. I give them that advice. Success is a choice because th- their problem is in their question. Because by asking what the secret is, you assume there's a shortcut. Like, you know what the, you know right. what the secret is, right? Continues to work on yourself, work your ass off, have great ideas and repeat until, you know, you're done. You're dead. That, Eureka. Secret, right? Like that's, but nobody wants that. They're like, oh, what's the, but I think that that's the one that I always go back to is like success is a choice. And I okay. think, you know, for so many people, it comes down to what are the choices you're willing to make, the work you're willing to do. Okay. Yeah. Here's the next signature question. All right. You probably don't know this. And even if you do, I'm going to tell you again. I am a spiritual New Yorker and I want to take you to at this very moment to New York City and Times Square. What's your billboard? There's a whole debate here on that. As somebody who lived in New York for 16 years, I don't think any real New Yorker would want to go to Times Square. But <laughs> destination aside, it, there's like, no, no, I know it's but look. I mean, look, and it's, I have it tattooed on my right arm, right? I, I think, you know, for me, it really is the, here's the crazy ones, because I think there is so much that's encapsulated in that line for what Jack Kerouac wrote, not Steve Jobs. If you think Steve wrote it, do your research. You know, look, because I just, I think all the themes that we have talked about around self-belief, around self-confidence, around creativity, like so much of this is introspective. So much of this is about self-belief and self-acceptance and and a lot of these very, very difficult things. But I think everybody has this power inside of them. Everybody is usually much better and much stronger and much more talented than they give themselves credit for. It is just finding that balance of how do you find a little bit less external validation? How do you believe in yourself a little bit more? How do you prioritize your happiness or what it is that you want to do, but also understand that you can be successful and, and do those things. They can coexist. Awesome. The last one, I can't wait to hear this. What's your walk-up song, Stephen Gates? Oh, my knee-jerk reaction would be Paying the Cost to Be the Boss by B.B. King. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> a little while ago, it might have been The Thrill is Gone if we were staying with that. But um, yeah, I mean, I think just any one of those. There's another one called All My Friends Are Crazy. Um, yeah, any or all of these would probably be good. Your greatest hits, not just your yeah. Well, yeah, I was going to say, I think, yeah, I think it's, it's always like asking people, where, where's your favorite place to go on vacation? It's a little bit of like, Who's the audience? What's the environment? Again, I think you want something with good energy. You want something a little bit unexpected. You want something that, you know, has a message and not just a good groove to it. So, yeah, I think any of these would work. You work. You're working for all of us. This is, there are so many wonderful messages here. You can find Stephen Gates at 
Come on, Stephen. You, you, you can either find me at stephengates.com. It's S-T-E-P-H-E-N. You can find the show at The Crazy One, which is that crazy and the number one.com. Just stick my name in anywhere and I tend to show up. So yeah, but those are those are the two easiest places. Yeah. And I always find them on LinkedIn. So that being said, thank you so much. Hang around for a few minutes. We're just going to wrap it up. Hey, don't forget to click that subscribe button. And we'll see you next week for another episode of Career Blast and a half. Thanks again, guys. Bye. Thank you for joining today. We appreciate your listening ears. Big time. We ask this. Use these tools, not tomorrow, right now. And share them by spreading the love. Leaving us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss the next Career Blast in a half. Most of all, thank you for you.